In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. It's Friday. It looks like we made it. Sun is shining, the birds are singing, and I hope the wind is at your back. I have got a a, a warm gust of wonderfulness headed your way with this show. The one and only Chuck Metz Jr., creator of the Balance the Triangle newsletter, member of the Gray Swan Guild, a historian by training, his passion for science and its impact upon human behavior involves him in a project examining the intersection of contemporary science and its challenges to human culture and growth. He can be found on LinkedIn where he curates information and hosts discussions under the tagline, This Random Sense of Wonder. We're going to talk about the, the YES Project, and I'm sure we're going to find ourselves on some tangents. Uh, Chuck, awesome. Thank you for being here today. How are you? Uh, it's always a delight talking with you. Uh... Uh, I just find it fun and engaging and um, nice to be simpatico on so many things. So just, it's a joy, George. The, I, I couldn't agree more. And you and I, b- before starting this, this wonderful conversation with the audience, we were talking and you had mentioned something along the lines of love being the only transformative force. Maybe you can, we can pick up there. Maybe, maybe you can re- refresh the audience's memory with the conversation we just had. Okay. Um, for me, and this is uh, very personal, it un- it's both philosophical, experiential, and uh, personal. Um, until I see differently, until I hear differently, I'm convinced that there's only one tremendous transformative force throughout life throughout the universe, uh, throughout entropy, throughout whatever you want to say, and that has to do with love. Uh, Certainly my own experience, I've watched love transform people from uh, lesser versions of themselves, if you will, to greater versions of themselves. 
I've seen it expand people. I've seen people find acceptance. I've seen people begin to care about other people. So it's more than a social relationship between a species that likes group social behavior. It's transformative at the core of our beings. Uh, so for me, love is essentially the end all, the be all. Uh, many quotes around it, many things over the centuries, but uh, certainly uh, kicking and screaming quite often, I've been led to that uh, you are loved, okay, uh, you can love others, okay, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, that's simplifying it a little bit, but I do seriously think, folks, love is the only thing that heals broken people and broken societies, and it's tough to do. Where would you put suffering in there? Would, would suffering be a transformative force as well? It is, but it's, I think, again, love is a stronger force. Suffering, there are many forces that are transformative, right. both affirmative and nihilistic. Uh, I think love trumps all forces. Uh, you cannot necessarily undo, certainly, the past. You cannot undo uh, experience. But you can certainly change or you can be changed mm. uh, in response. And it doesn't mean that um, it changes even the exterior. It may or may not. But all of our life is perceived through this small couple of pounds of gray matter. And all of it is processed inside in that vast nebulous swirl of neurons that just uh, do their thing along with other things. Uh, and we have the choice of the galaxy we, wanna, we want to build within our head. And for me, love is the one thing that can make a, a great universe inside your head. And then from there, individually, from person to person to person, it transforms. I've seen it. Uh, but certainly it does not in a Pollyanna sort of way, take away from the fact that um, there's much suffering and many horrible things in the world. And of course, I grew up in the hippie generation and I loved seeing flowers stuck into uh, gun barrels. And I loved seeing flower children. And I, actually I've been rehashing some of that and looking at some of the old folks from the days when we were young. And it's very strange to see all of us gray and old remembering uh uh certainly a, a an interesting it was an interesting time and it certainly helped form me uh but many other things form that as far as love goes uh but it's transformative yeah it's it's interesting to think about sometimes i, I look at suffering as a component of love you know which is a it may seem weird on the on the surface but Sometimes when you suffer, that's when you find love. That's when you find self-love. That's when you find out who really loves mm -hmm. you. That's when you find out what's important. And so maybe it's a, it's a component to understanding what true love is. It's sometimes the facade falls away when you're suffering and you, the light of love can shine in. But I, it's, it's interesting to think about the, uh, the universality of love, which I, I think Ooh. Is, is is something that translates maybe like maybe not the same words through and through but that idea is something that permeates all cultures yeah, there's a there's a phrase i love 
uh, to use that word uh, in that weak way we always say when we love something that's not deep. Uh, it says, I may hurt you, but I will not harm you. Mm. And there is hurt and there is harm. And certainly hurt, uh, if you want to be dualistic, is a part of love. You can't know beauty if you don't see ugly, I suppose. You can't know love <laughs> if you don't see non-love. Just like with dot, uh, you can't know is unless there's not is. Um, so I would want, I guess, any suffering I go through to be, it may hurt, but ultimately, at least from my frame of reference, uh, it won't harm. But then then there we're getting very deeply into personal beliefs that uh, I don't want to go too deeply into a, a narrow individualistic view. But I think there is a difference for me. It's more than semantic between hurt and harm. So you bring up dot. I think this is a good spot to begin to introduce the yes project. Maybe you can maybe you can give us a an overall idea of what who dot is, what the yes project is and and how it fits into balance the triangle. Okay. Yeah. Uh, balance the triangle is my current study effort and um, uh, effort to put some things out there. Uh, Looking at the relationship between uh, the rather infamous quote by the biologist E.O. Wilson, who says the main problems that we have as human beings is that we have paleolithic emotions, we have medieval institutions, and we have godlike technology. And there's a disconnect between the two of them. Now, the disconnect is we're cognitively smarter than we are emotionally intelligent. So we spend all kinds of time. Uh, whether we're in corporations doing emotional intelligence tests, uh, whether this and that and that and that, we, we, we go on and on about it. And sometimes we blather about it. And yes, we need to be more emotionally intelligent. Uh, what I do in Balance the Triangle is look at, okay, why, why are emotions so difficult to harness? Uh, because that's kind of a, a raw if you, if you want to be evil or bad that's kind of a raw first level well i just am uh it gets worse when you then cognitively take it and maliciously begin to uh implement strategies to be bad so there's there's many levels with it but emotions are hard to harness and and from an evolutionary standpoint uh, ostensibly they're there because they help to survive they're quicker than cognition. They allowed us to do mental shortcuts. They allow us to uh, exist in um, realities that have danger for us. So we have emotions and uh, we have many other things from our uh, evolutionary beginnings, which is, I guess, why one of the subjects I really, really like lately is, is I've been exploring evolutionary psychology which is so interesting because it's broad and covers many, many things. But by the same token, uh, academics also often think of it as people being dilettantes in many fields. Uh, but I like big pictures, so of course I'm drawn to it. Uh, but evolutionary psychology talks about emotions and human wiring and what it brings to the table. 
and we bring it with us whether we recognize it or not. So the Balance the Triangle project is how can we become uh, more smart from an emotional and a human wiring standpoint individually? And then as we do that uh, collectively, how can we take that and uh, transform institutions so that they're not reflections of the earlier medieval and earlier ethics of whether it just be a strong alpha male led, strong alpha female led, uh, the whole way we are wired again. And I I think I talked about that before on here, but uh, the project looks at that. And the reason it becomes so important right now is we used to have clubs uh, then we had knives and spears, and then we had other ways of hurting ourselves. But now we have not only nuclear things, but with the digital world evolving as fast as it is, we have ways to control each other and hurt each other that are godlike if you want to go there. And rather than certainly we can be beneficially godlike, uh, but we tend to prove over uh, many, many cultures and decades that we tend to be uh, malevolent godlike. Uh, part of us. So even if it's a subset of us, uh, a small subset with godlike technologies can overwhelm the majority. Uh, So it's a problem. So Balance the Triangle looks at how can we use our technology to advance, uh, in Dot's words, is Mm -hmm. versus not is, affirmative versus uh, nihilistic. Uh, So where yes fits into that, is I've not given up talking to adults. I still work there and, and educate. Uh, but who's the future? Children of the future. And it's so hard to stare into a four-year-old's eyes and they ask questions that are so obvious and we can't answer them. Daddy, why do we kill each other? Well, I want to say because we're stupid primates. <laughs> but what am I going to say? I, you know, you don't want to say, I don't know. Uh, so I've been thinking, what can I do that's part of Balance the Triangle, that's a, a, a subsection of the project that might leave something behind when I quit breathing uh, and reach younger people? Uh, so I have envisioned a series of books that blend science and uh, philosophy. Uh, of course, I'm going to pick a philosophy. And people are going to argue with that philosophy. They're going to want to put their own philosophy with it. But here's what I would say. I'm picking a human philosophy that I'm trying to be so fundamental basic that it's under the thing of culture. It's human. Uh, Because cultures are a layer atop what we come to the table with as uh, evolutionary paleolithic folks uh we are one human race we are one species cultures lay atop that so the intent is to look for a common human philosophy that we could all agree on and then we can go to our cultures and make it flower in many beautiful and different ways uh Well, one thing it seems to me that we can say for sure is that existence is better than non-existence, is is better than (laughs) not is. Uh, We agree on that. 
we agree on a number of other things, but for now I kept it very simple so that in the Yes series, uh, folks from religious and secular and other backgrounds can um, look at it and say, okay, yeah, I can, I can agree with that part of it. Then they can teach their children how to affirm their culture, how to affirm the things that are good and how to combat the things that the children don't even know the word that's nihilistic, that is destructive. Uh, so that's kind of the Yes Project in a heartbeat. Uh, first volume uh, takes quantum physics and blends quantum physics at a high level and um, talks uh, about the basic in a very high level kind of way. Other volumes are going to move from there, uh, whether it be chemistry, whether it be biology, whether it be um, psychology, whatever. But the intent will be at the end of X number of volumes that we can say, okay, I've looked, had an overview of sciences and other things, and through it all runs the thread of uh, affirmation. No solutions necessarily in the book, though in the book, uh, because George, I know you've read it, uh, you see that part of it offers uh, things that children can do. Uh, and so that when they stare up at us and they're sitting in our lap and they say, uh, well, I took care of a little bird today. It fell out of its nest and I put it back. We can affirm that action as a loving action. And uh, we don't necessarily have to answer other than the child may say, well, why don't we go do this, daddy? And we may uh, squirm a little bit at going to do something they want to do. But children have a way of looking at the world with a, a realistic look, and they haven't yet been compromised in, in their cognition. Um, so that's it in a very short spiel. I love it. I, I did have a chance to read it. And the first thing that my daughter said as I as I read the title, we sat down at the kitchen table and we had we looked at it and she goes, wait, dad, is this a book or is it a song because of the title? And, it, you know, I, I, we had a nice little chuckle about it. And I'm like, I don't know. Should we try to sing it? Let's try to sing it and see if it comes out as a song, you know. So right off the bat for me and my family, it invited a playful moment, which I think is always a great sign of what's to come, you know, and I there were parts where we tried to sing it and we had fun doing it, you know, and, and on some ways you can think of the creation of the world as a vivid vibration of music, you know? And so that, I kind of go off on tangents like that, but we had a discussion about that. And what I, one thing that I really liked about it amongst many is that the same way culture is layered onto people, I think our creation myths are layered onto this. Maybe maybe that has to do with culture yeah. as well. And I like the yeah. way in which multiple creation mythologies were, were kind of put into the soup right there so everyone could kind of see it and, and layer that in there. It kind of gave a nice all-around idea of what the Egyptians thought, what the Greeks thought. And then it kind of ties together with this idea of what is nothingness. And these are these are giant epistemological questions, you know, and they're put into a, a fun way where you and your kids can talk about it. So the beginning part, I I maybe we could start there in the beginning. Like that mm -hmm. was a, the first part that really kind of grabbed my attention. What how how did that come to be? Were you were you sitting aside and being like, hmm, how do I introduce the different sort of 
creation stories to children? Like, how did you tackle that beast? I wanted to talk philosophically right. at a level children might be able to understand. Children are not uh, a two-dimensional surface film plates reflecting back the world. They think they come to conclusions and they're able to understand things if they're put into uh, language that can they can understand. Uh, of course, from my background as a historian, uh, I've studied civilizations from uh, Neolithic times, and then I've, I've studied Paleolithic stuff, but I've studied various civilizations. I've, my own personal background is the study of many, many, many civilizations, and all of them do things and look at things from human perspective mm -hmm. and they're fundamental what is what isn't why am i here what am i supposed to do why does this hurt why does this feel good all these questions are answered and again you look behind it and it's human uh now uh I remember when I was working on my master's, um, we had a discussion in one class, whatever, and I said, and they disagreed with me, and 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 I'm okay with that. Uh, I said, you put Genghis Khan, you put uh, uh, Nero, you put uh, Machiavelli, you put any number of people in this room together. I said, I do not care what you tell me about their cultural differences. And yes, they will think differently. Underneath it all, we are evolutionary paleolithic hominids who have large brains and we do things a certain way. Now, that is so fundamental and so basic that that gets lost because we don't live at the hominid level. We live at the cultural level. Mm. And so, you know, certainly in today's fractured world, uh, why does left and right fight? Why do conservatives and liberals fight? It's not because they're hominids that feel this. It's a cultural, cultural thing. But beneath it, it's the same drivers. I want to take care of my family. I want to have a relationship with a small group. I need to show you deference. How do I do that? I don't want to show you deference. Uh, I want to be king. You know, all the things we wrestle with transcend all cultures. Uh, so I want in this series of books to look at us again as a human race. And if we can concentrate on our humanity, maybe we can at least ameliorate a little bit this tribalistic thing we have. Uh, which again is another layer above. Uh, and if we can't do it as humans, maybe I can leave a little bit for children to have a different way to look. And, <coughs> excuse me. So that's kind of how uh, those creation myths, if you will, came into being. It is interesting in creation mm -hmm. myths that I selected three, uh, but they all talk about void and darkness Right. And nothingness and chaos. 
and whatever uh, again there you see the uh, primate brain which is predisposed to put order hmm. on things and the the idea of disorder is terrible because with disorder you don't know if that leopard's about to jump through the tree at you you don't know if that mammoth what it's doing so we we want order and so in our myths we tend to think of disorder and chaos as being a very primitive thing and i have found that to be true across many many cultures and to me it's an interesting fact that i think ultimately comes from the structure of human brain mm -hmm. but i don't know it's a learning thing i'm always uh eating crow in various ways and changing some opinions but certain fundamentals seem to transcend that what do you think is the relationship between disorder and disease or disease well disease the funny thing about disease uh it's order as well uh <laughs> it has its own uh order right. uh, what what we call disease the actual organisms who are doing the thing would call order and prosperity <laughs> so it's a frame of reference uh, right. and we're impo we're imposing our own morality on that and that's okay yeah that's okay uh, i don't like cancer i don't want to see cancer cells proliferate within me the host because uh, i value my host more than i value the cancerous cells but that's a very uh, there's uh, religions also address that in in their own way so it's it's a frame of reference but underline that if you will i think if you will look at is versus not is and i'm trying to make that the simplest yeah. mantra possible then you can define disease is it increasing uh uh affirmation or is it tending towards uh something nihilistic and then we get to choose. Well, the uh, mm. annihilation of cancer cells is an okay annihilation. The annihilation of death, those kinds of things. So yeah, disease is actually fairly ordered in my opinion. Yeah. I, I'm always interested in the way words can be broken down or be looked at in different ways like the mm -hmm. you know when i sometimes when i look at like dis-ease and then you start looking at all the people that may find themselves in poor health and their life definitely isn't easy you know and how much of this dis-ease how much of this disorder you know led to this problem of disease or disease it's it's interesting mm -hmm. there's there's a there's a there's a thread there i'm not sure it thoroughly connects but it's it's fun to investigate and pull on those threads which as i'm doing that now i'm thinking of is versus not is in some ways until you spoke a second ago i never saw that as a framework for to fundamentally look through the other lens through it and be like yeah is this a good thing or is this a bad thing you know it's mm -hmm. interesting to take it from that angle how, how did you boil it down to that but is that just the the foundation of of the, the easiest one you come up with for a for someone to grasp is versus not is uh that is the simplest way i created that as i guess uh the mantra uh, it's not a new thing, of course. It's just a reiteration of of the concept. But I thought that that would boil down and become something fun and simple and easy to say for a child. Mm -hmm. 
that could help him determine him or her mm -hmm. uh, determine whether something is good or bad. I'm, I tried yeah. very hard not to use the words good or bad. Uh, I, I want to give good and bad the opportunity to be defined by the culture. Okay. But underneath it, then uh, the culture can say, uh, is this increasing order or is this towards nihilism? Because we can all tend to agree for the most part. Uh, whether we speak it out loud or whether it's politically correct, uh, all the various things, people tend to, at a pragmatic level, look at a culture and say, well, that culture is kind of bad in what it does overall. And, and, and we say this and this and this in the West, and they say this and this and this in the East. If you boil it down, they're pretty much the same uh, once you get beneath the cultural level. Uh, we tend to have some broad agreement as humans on what's good and what's bad and they're simple and fundamental uh but as part of the balance of the triangle why is it we can't do it why must we keep uh attacking our neighbors and trying to take their land and and this and that well there's reasons for it most of them explanatory and um and can be dealt with but uh, that's a long 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 conversation uh, so I'm trying to get five to 12 year olds ah. who think not about the negatives. They're going to see that every day on the television. Right. They see it every day with what their parents worry about. I want them to think the positive side of it. What can I do? Why should I do it? What can I do? Why should I do it? Why am I dealing with this bully like this at school? Mm -hmm. Why should my father and I not go do this? And and they they think, yeah, children think. It's interesting that you chose that age range from five to twelve. With with a lot of the cultures and and history that you've studied, is there a certain age range where you think the cultural imprinting is the heaviest and a time to influence it? I. Personal opinion right now, based on partly cognitive things that I've mm -hmm. studied and thought about, but some of it just experience. Uh, those of us that have had children and raised children see a huge difference in our preteen children and our teenage children. And cultures across time and space have identified and dealt with that uh, certainly we're imprinted with our cultural values by the time i would think that we're 12ish or so uh and then what makes them very complicated is the hormones kick in mm. and we become adults and then everything's become much more hormonal driven for a while because we're captives of the need to uh what i just call the need to breed yeah. Uh, we're held captive by that genetic imperative that uh, yeah. you don't get to kind of rest from again until you get older. Yeah. Uh, so prior to 12, uh, I say five only because uh, my children started asking questions at three and four. But, you know, we tend to start any schooling we're going to do around the five to six year old range, because I think cultures as a rule 
have kind of understood that children begin to be able to process in a cognitive way uh, that. Now, interestingly, we were talking about the medieval period before this uh, began. Interestingly, when you look at the paintings in that, you see children who are little miniature adults and, and they're kind of invisible and they're not thought of as either developmental or a growing. Uh, they're just kind of beneath the surface until they hit uh, their uh, coming of age. Uh, so not all civilizations have appreciated uh, children. Uh, they've been labor. Of course, we had them as yeah. labor during the Industrial Revolution. I mean, how crazy is that? Uh, you know, let's just breed our own race of serfs. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's sometimes I wonder, you know, just looking back, not even that long ago, things seem pretty barbaric. And to those people, them looking back, things seem pretty barbaric. So if the best predictor of future behavior is past relevant behavior, I'm sure that our gen the next generation is going to look back on us and like, you guys did what? That's kind of barbaric. <laughs> it's weird to see that pattern, right? It's it's to be hoped that uh, <laughs> we are on some sort of evolutionary growth path as a species. Uh, of course, in balance the triangle, the thing is, are we going to get past this uh, right. uh, youthfulness we're at now to the next stage? That's what makes that kind of critical. Yeah, it begs the question if if we can see in our child's life and in our own life being held captive by hormonal forces what does that mean in the grand scheme of the human lineage like are we at an age where we're being cap being held captive by a bigger force that we don't thoroughly understand are we going through our own adolescence as a species on some level i think you can make the case for that i think you can make a case for it i've seen any number of cases about that right um are we adolescent <clears throat> i tend to feel as a species we are somewhat uh the only thing i see tremendously different uh at least since the neolithic period uh which is uh you know twelve thousand years ago very very recent it's a it's a blip in time mm -hmm. uh we in in what i'm looking at uh seem to be essentially human all through our neolithic uh if you look at a neolithic mm -hmm. farmer uh He's probably not that different from, you know, a uh, farmer today. Uh, his mental world's going to be different. He's going to see magic different. His cognition's going to be different. But we seem to be what we were. Um, that being said, uh, adolescent. So here's where I was going with that. What's different in the last 12,000 years is technology. Mm. Uh technology that allows us to expand our control of things. It's as if, if we were to make up a civilization, let's say that uh, your coming of age ceremony is you were given, a, for want of a better word, uh, uh, some sort of gun, ray gun, let's say. And this ray gun has a capacity to shoot and kill and do all kinds of things. Before you have the ray gun, you're one thing. After you have the ray gun, you're another. Um, so before that period, 
you treat the child certain ways, you teach it, you treat it other ways. After that period, it's now adult and just as um, dangerous as any other adult. Uh, in some ways, our technology now, if you want to use the adolescent uh, metaphor for our, us, uh, we're at that cusp. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got enough stuff now that uh, we're very dangerous to ourselves. And the sad part of that, if, if sad, for me, sad's an appropriate word. Uh, the sad part of that is we have the uh, way to be uh, the other as well. Uh, create a hugely better world. We could do that today. Uh, we have the resources, we have the money, we have the social structures, mm-hmm. uh, but certain things hold it back. Some of it is emotional. Uh, I would say if you look at the article, I think you saw the article I did in the Uncertainty book. I did. Uh, uh, I did do a little article there about how things evolve over uh, periods and that underneath the cultures again we're all the same so the drives that drive us now are the same as the drives that drove egyptians to build the pyramids uh or drove medieval uh we just have more capacity to do harm than we used to have and maybe we won't destroy ourselves but certainly with what i see of uh especially neuroscience some of the uh, things going on in the neuroscience community, the ability to control minds, the ability to control uh, freedom, uh, the ultimate control would be to control will and volition. And that's what yeah. we tend to do as a species. I can put you in a cage right. and you can't do what you want to do. And I can control you. Yeah. I can put you in a feudal serfdom and I can control you. Uh, where you can refine it to such a degree as we've seen in science fiction movies and that. Uh, I can put a button on the side of your head and you're going to think what I want you to think. You're going to do what I want you to do. And certainly in many religious traditions, uh, there's a lot to be said about free will. And that's another discussion, but free will is certainly one of the definitive things that defines uh the ability to have agency in something. Mm. Uh, that's another discussion as well. It's interesting. You, you brought up, for those that are listening, you have were co-authored and co-created another book called Uncertainty with the Gray Swan Guild and lots of other great authors in there. And in some ways, did you use, it seems to me on some level you were able to incorporate some of the ideas of uncertainty into the yes project was that a conscious thing or did that just kind of carry over uh the thing there the relationship is that i brought into uncertainty this whole framework of where i'm at right now what i'm Mm -hmm. working with so that uh i gave it a specific futures spin and look because that's what they wanted to do mm-hmm. and i dealt specifically with uncertainty mm-hmm. uh so in that case yes i made this fit their framework uh but certainly i would have been the odd guy out uh it's certainly different than right. uh uh i'm definitely not a futures forecaster or any of the um uh professionals i guess uh 
I'm just I'm I'm the tolerated old guy with a beard. <laughs> I I can see the echoes though in in yes when we yes. talk about creation myths and you know I like it a lot. I, I think that teaching on maybe on some level we we condition the idea of living with uncertainty out of children. But the, the, the sooner they can become familiarized with uncertainty, with, with, within reason, I mean, they need to have a structure in their life, but when they can begin to develop a relationship with uncertainty, I think it makes for a more balanced life later. You know, it's a very difficult mm -hmm. concept to, to struggle with. Even as an adult, when you're forced with it, when you're faced with uncertainty, like it can really trap you in the past or trap you in the future and you end up with anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a powerful relationship there. It is. And I, I like the point you were bringing up about, uh, uncertainty as a, a bellwether of, um, uh, childhood development, mm -hmm. uh, cognitive development, uh, because, uh, uh, how to say this without appearing, um, whatever word I want to use. We know people who are certain of everything. Hmm. And we know people who are certain of nothing. And, and uh, many people have made the uh, uh, distinction between uncertainty and the ability to handle uncertainty being a bellwether of one type of development and the ability to be dogmatic and be very, very certain the bellwether of another. I think I've said that very gently. <laughs> uh, I think uncertainty is a good thing. Uh, as a species, we try because the, the thing, uh, again, that I alluded to, I think in my article there, is we don't like uncertainty and everybody knows that that certainly wrote in that book uh we don't as humans like it and we we look for certainty and often to our detriment as you yeah. allude to uh how many people do we know myself included having done this will stay in a job that is just not good for us uh because the ability to find another job is tough and uncertain and what I get may be worse than what I have. And that is very paleolithic mm. in our wiring, the inability to give up something we have because of the uncertainty of the future. Uh, that is a human, very human defining uh, part of who we are under all cultures. So back to your point again, which I like, because uh, I hadn't thought of it in quite that way. Uh, yes, part of acculturation is building certain cultural certainties into the child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in some ways that's what stifles growth. You know, it, when you, when you, it becomes dogmatic in some ways. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it does. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> uh, I, Again, and here's the thing I would say, what I'm learning. Love is the transformative. Yeah, How do I love someone radically different from me 
Well, mm-hmm. I will if they will let me and if they will let me live and mm-hmm. agree to uh, pursue my way as long as I'm not harming others, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but within the bell curve of human psychology, uh, there is a large number of people with very strong certainties yeah. that don't allow that. And from yeah. that comes much pain. Yeah. Uh, so to your point again, yeah, let children have a little bit of uncertainty. That's a healthy thing. When, when writing this book, you and I had spoken a little bit before, and you said you had envisioned the book being read or shared between a parent reading to their kid or a teacher reading to their kid. That's an interesting angle to write from. What, 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 how did that come about? Like, what does that mean that you wrote that book with that in mind? I wrote that because when it comes to philosophy and meaning Mm. and all those very strong things that we wrestle with, Mm -hmm. uh, a child cannot should not have to look at that alone uh because uh our minds are echo chambers and whatever little bit of cognition the child has or experience it has is going to be magnified within that little skull and the child should have some wisdom i think uh especially at a young age so i think for these particular subjects I, I found in my mind's eye that it needed that conversation back and forth because the child is going to say, uh, well, uh, I don't know. What does this mean? What does this mean? And the parent may or may not know, but they can discuss it if yeah. uh, they're willing to because they're hard concepts. Um, the book is is of course the first half is well no the first little bit is introducing philosophy and then we have the science of quantum physics right. and we use the quantum physics as a storytelling metaphor for the larger philosophical picture and then the action items if you will what you can do is kind of of course how it's done and i think that this subject I've said that it can be read alone by a child. When I say that, I think more, you know, an intelligent 11 or 12 year old uh, can probably wrestle with some of those. The thing I like about it so far with this first volume is it's the same messages as you would give an adult. And actually the language is simple enough that a lot of adults can read it and think about it Mm -hmm. and they can wrestle individually with it. So I'm hoping that maybe uh, we get a twofer here. Uh, we get adults who begin to wrestle with some of these existential questions as they teach their children. So maybe the children then, as the fresh imprints, grow up a little differently and the adults begin to think about, well, why do I do this? Uh, so I, I, I think and I, I can't put totally into words uh, but I don't see it being useful to a small child to be read by themselves so I loved when you told me you read it with your daughter 
Yeah. I, you're the first person I've talked to yet who has actually sat down and read it. And and I thought it was great. How old is your daughter? Are, She's are 10. you willing to say? Yeah. 10? 10. And see, 10. What an appropriate time to sit and have a discussion uh, between you who thinks about all these things and has some uh, valid, uh, good advice to give. And uh, a 10 year old who's questioning and on the cusp of becoming an adult. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's best done as a, a collaboration. Uh, but we'll see if that bears out. That was in my head. And we'll see if that turns out to be a wrong mental model or not. But I think it has more validity together. Me too. And I think you should continue to push on it. Like when I, the, the way, because you had mentioned that, that your intention was to read it together, like it allowed me to see it in the framework of co-creation. And I don't know that I've really thought about that before, but reading that intention and maybe, you know, maybe it's something's happening in the world, but I was like, yeah, now we can co-create our ideas together. You know, and, and, and it does, it has some exercises in there where if I'm reading it out loud, I can stop and pause. Maybe in the next volumes, it would be epic to have a quiz or like, you know, something, okay, dad, do this, kid, do this. Now compare the answers. Because I think you can really, if she can take her puzzle piece and I can take mine and, and have our individuals, then we put it together. I think that's one further step in this co-creating of ideas. But I think it could be a whole genre of books like co-creation stories and and that invites the parent the fact that it's written in there i think really calls to the parent like hey sit down and read this with them you know sometimes we need that gentle nudge whether we're a child or we're an adult oh this is a group thing oh yeah i, I guess i should have known that but i didn't know but it, i like that idea of co-creation there and that's the that's the first time it came to my mind was when i when i saw that there that, that, and that's why i was curious like how that came up to be it's it's interesting. Well, that, was, that was my intent. I did not use that word, but I love your use of that word. Uh, because think about it now, as far as co-creation, uh, you sitting down and talking with your daughter, uh, as far as co-creation, when the child is grown, if they're going to be another Gandhi, if they're going to be another uh, Martin Luther King, if they're going to be... Uh, whatever much of that comes from their ideation inside but much of that comes from upbringing and mm -hmm. culture and so yes you're building as we said earlier culturally you're building in the larger context but co-creation is an even finer concept of one-on-one -on -one co-creating together at a family level but more than that uh, how many um sayings talk about the infinity in one person and all that that child can become and if two together can help co-create this ethos into a child then that's what i'm hoping for and i love i'm, I'm going to borrow your word i love that yeah. i've not thought of it in terms of co-creation yeah and uh so i love it i, I love I, it that's, that's good george that's real good and so I see it as a bigger picture too. Like I, like on some level, that idea is what's needed to override the, 
the the cultural imprinting like that has giant ramifications a generation of children that learn to co-create are a generation of children that build bridges you know what i mean like that's yeah. coming together here like hey look at this just a few changes of the semantics over here and it all of a sudden the picture expands out it's like let's okay, take the blinders off now now we're all working together look at that mm-hmm. <laughs> and and if we're doing that proactively yes um, at a younger level uh then it augments the spontaneous things like we talked about earlier uh in the 60s the whole hippie flower child peace and love and all of that that was uh it just sprang up from various sources uh but it was a different ethos than uh what the prevailing society had at the time uh and what if we were doing that younger and more proactively. Uh, so that's one of my hopes. Yeah. Um, uh, so, which is one reason I can push the book without uh, feeling like I normally do. I'm not a hawker. I'm not a uh, PR kind of fellow. Uh, so I always have uh, difficulty in promoting things. Uh, this, I'm able to distance myself a little bit from that because I'm trying to promote a message and uh something and so you know is is better than not is is the mantra and then if you want to say the high five sign is yes in that font and in that with that exclamation point that's the symbol uh and that's what i'll be using throughout um but yeah i would like to see it i'm i'm not so young and naive as to uh see going huge or who knows but i can leave it behind and somebody like you and like others is going to run with it (laughs) and you know maybe more than one gandhi in a generation we might surprise ourselves with we just have 15 gandhis all at once uh promoting peace and other things i don't know uh, it's 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 a lovely task to um, yeah. for me to kind of think about is is uh, something I can give some time to do now. Yeah. So it's still in process in my thinking because um, it is is when I did it, it was while it's a natural um, evolution of what I'm doing in balance the triangle. Uh, it's one of those things, those ideas that just kind of pop into your head and and kind of brood for a little bit. And suddenly I didn't anticipate this. Certainly a few months ago, I wasn't even thinking about this. Mm-hmm. But now the idea won't let go of me. It's It's sort of like planting an acorn so that your children can sit under the, the protection of the oak tree, you know, and, and it's interesting that you, it's a more than, I like the, I like the idea that it's a project. I like the idea that it's a movement. I like the idea that it's continuing to evolve. Sometimes when people put something out, it seems like this one-stop thing. Okay, here's, here's the message. But the much like the science, it's never settled. So too is the story always going. And that does allow for someone else to pick it up and run with it. And it gets back to that idea of, hey, let's start this thing. Let's get the ball rolling and then see where it goes. You know, but like 
that that to me speaks volumes of where we are as a society when people like yourself are putting works out there for people to run with like that you know that sort of idea about something is is at least in my life it, it wasn't really thought of too much or at least i didn't think of it it was like i'm going to put this thing out for me you know but now it's like i'm going to put this out here for people to to help move forward i think that's a beautiful it, it speaks of growth it speaks of co-creation it speaks of a project the yes project i is that was it a movement in your mind when the idea popped into your mind yes in many ways um again i had to wrestle with uh the thing i've wrestled with is keeping it at a level that people can pick it up in a variety of cultures and with a variety of thinking styles, I want to keep it human. Mm -hmm. And then you can take the human. Uh, certainly in my head, it's more than a book. It's more than a series of books. Uh, it's movement's a bit of a grandiose word, but maybe it's a movement. Maybe it's it's certainly non-original. It's it's a reflection of what we tried to do across many cultures and times. This is another expression of the universe, if you will, is is better than not is. This is my particular flavor on it. Uh, and yeah, I'd love to see it go uh, many places. And 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 not only that, but develop uh, uniqueness as different people do things with it uh but i don't know we'll see well you know on amazon things uh, uh you're constantly fighting the algorithm so uh as i told my wife i said i'm gonna put it out there it doesn't matter uh i'll do the next one and the next one and if it sells 10 if it sells 100 they're gonna be out there yeah. and all i need if you if we want to say i all <laughs> we need is for a couple of children to be moved because as a species we look at leaders and we we tend to want to find those people and elevate them the bell curve is not going to produce a million of them but we just it just has to get into the hands of a good parent and a good child and as you said again i'm loving that word co-create <laughs> let them co-create together yeah in that universe within that child's head something i mean i think uh in a different sort of way one of the youngsters that impacted me over the last five years a lot was greta thunberg mm. uh with her youthful movement for climate change uh look what a youngster did out of what was in her head and her compassion and her caring and and she did something just a youngster. Youngsters can do so much. And uh, we need some good youngsters right now. We need something because um, I'm not even going to go there, but boy, <laughs> we, could, we could get some youth into some of the things we do instead of everything we do being now done by some old people. <laughs> we need some youth again. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I'm reminded of the world of storytelling. You know, when you look back to the ancient 
Greeks or the Homeric verses or even some indigenous people where they would gather around and tell stories. Or even when you went to sixth grade camp, you'd go to the camp and they would tell ghost stories and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really think that in some levels, it's a great, like stories are just the fundamental way in which we retain information that stays with us forever. Maybe you could talk about your influence on storytelling and, and like, what do you think about storytelling and how's it, how has it influenced your life? Uh, number one, to your point, storytelling is imperative in the way we process knowledge. Uh, we, again, we're wired from our earliest times to react to storytelling, to like the hero, to like mm -hmm. the strong, especially whoops, the strong person. Uh, so it's fundamental. And so therefore, when you watch a PowerPoint at a business meeting and it's a bunch of facts, uh, you go away not caring. But if you tell that same thing in a story, it means a lot. So yeah, part of yes is to do that. Uh, storytelling for me has been uh, impactful. Uh, it's been a major part of my thinking. Um, now, uh, yeah, I love fiction. Yeah. Uh, I love stories. I tend to, as far as my personal preference, uh, um, because of the way I'm wired, I guess, uh, I love stories that blend the best of science with the best of storytelling and that are futures oriented, mm -hmm. uh, which probably seems obvious having talked to me. <laughs> uh, I just find that compelling. Uh, I find stories that make me weep hmm. compelling. Uh, I only watch a few of them because life's hard enough and, and I don't need to fill myself with sadness. Uh, but always those stories, at least for me, have had that human component, uh, that hero, uh, that person transcending whatever they're transcending to become, to be, and achieve, uh, and we're wired that way because think about it. We've had, we have, we've had the, you and I haven't had this discussion, but we've had discussions. If AI starts writing all our stories, will we care? Um, well, we will only relay if AI can make the stories uh, very human with heroes and emotion and all of that, uh, because we don't much get into stories of the ant that transformed. Uh, its world and and fixed the hive and went out and did battle against the black ants and the red ants and uh, we just don't care uh we're very species cognizant uh so for ai to write our stories for us it's going to have to pretend to be a primate but that being said the value in storytelling is two or threefold in, in what I think. Uh, number one, it relates to us at our most basic fundamental evolutionary wiring. And therefore it speaks deeply to mm -hmm. us at levels we can't always verbalize. Uh, second thing is we live within a universe that appears linear. Uh, time appears to flow one way. Uh, things seem to be causal and sequential. And that's what we're used to. 
So we're going to tell stories in the same frame. Uh, of course, philosophers, some have said that our uh, existence itself is just a story that uh, whether it's a hologram, whether it's whatever, but that there's no actuality to the causality. Uh, uh, boy, that's a tongue twister. Yeah, right. <laughs> actuality to the causality. Because um, we're experiencing discrete moments and then our brains wire them together into a story. Uh, whatever the rationale for all of that is, it is how we think. It is how we process the quote unquote real and it's how we interpret. So when or if we change, uh, again, philosophies and religions have different things to think about as to whether a consciousness um, continues and so forth. But if we just want to be rhetorical for a moment, if it continues, um, it will depend, of course, upon how it's embodied within any kind of structure. Uh, but what will storytelling have to say to a different kind of sentience than this? Uh, uh, I remember the first time I saw someone say that a consciousness embodied in a computer would go insane. <laughs> uh, and the point was that we are more than just cognition in our mind. We are the uh, sensory parts of our body, our physicality that intersects with yeah. the world. And without that, uh, there is. So uh, so one thing I think people have trouble with thinking about uh, consciousness transcending death is, well, without a body and without physicality, uh, what use is it? It wouldn't be human, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know. Yeah. Goodness, there's so much we don't know. Uh, so storytelling is intrinsic to us as human beings. I think I've rattled enough about that. Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a wonderful topic and it's deep and it, on some level, I I think we're weaving a new story. And I always ask people these questions because I'm like trying to get hints. Like I wonder what they think about that. Wait, sometimes I look at my life. I've I've begun to take on this idea that's been very helpful, and I want to share this technique with people. Is that look at your life like a story? Where are you at in your story? And I've 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 recently come to this idea, you know, I used to, when I first came up on the idea, I was like, okay, yeah, I am the main character in this story and I'm trying to get the author's attention. But as a few years ago, or even about a year ago, I realized, wait a minute, these are all the main characters and I can reach out to all of them and I can play their parts. And like, now I can co-create with them. And like, in some ways in my mind, maybe it's where I'm at in my life, or maybe it's the events that's happening to me, but I feel as if this chapter is done and now we're creating this new story. But it's very empowering to see this third perspective of like, just look at yourself as a character in a story. It, mm -hmm. it, you have to sit with it for a little while, but it becomes a very fun exercise to do. Is it, do you see your life as a story? Uh, I can't help but because I'm wired <laughs> to do that. So yes, I do. Uh, and I assign meaning to uh, various parts of it uh, in my own personal story. Uh, as I tell my children that I have a, a section called the lost decade. Uh, and that's just part of my story. Uh, but there's a form of journaling, I believe. Uh, have you ever, uh, when you're thinking about your story, 
Have you ever, when you either journal or do whatever, instead of using first person, I use third person. It's very interesting to write about yourself and say, he went to the store today. He did this. He did that. It takes you out of it and it gives you not so much a God's eye. Right. It gives you a very different perspective on your day and on what you achieved and what you wanted to achieve. I've tried that a few times and it's been almost disturbing at times. <laughs> Why? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because if it wasn't, I guess I would still be doing it. Right. Uh, but, you know, but I mean, like right now, well, he had this interview with George and, and they click and they had fun and they enjoyed talking. And, uh, oh, his uh, earphones fell off the thing and busted in his computer. And, you know, you put it into third person and, and it changes mm -hmm. things. So it's an interesting exercise uh, to do. If you've not yeah. done it, I, I would say give it a try and, and see what it does. I bet you that can be very effective. Yeah, I bet you it could be very effective in 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 a mental health practice. You know, for someone who's trying to integrate traumas or something like that, writing Good. in the third person would probably be a great way to change your perspective on it, and you know, not have to face the traumatic mm -hmm. action in a way that's super confrontational. You might be able to just just shift your focus enough by writing about it in the third person. You know. I think for all I know, stole, they, yeah. that, that's one of their techniques. They may do that. I don't know. I don't I don't either, but they should. It sounds amazing. But I remember the first time I tried it, I, I it was a long, long time ago, but I can't remember. It was disconcerting, and it mm -hmm. bothered me. And I can't totally put my finger on it, though I can start to speculate about, well, consciousness and I, and well, where am I in that? You know, the I of us of who mm -hmm. we are our consciousness because it takes out that i and suddenly well did i disappear no that's just me doing that well, what about the me who rides along inside this body it does something interesting to our thinking and i haven't put my finger totally on it because i haven't thought about it in a long time so now i'm going to think about it again uh, <laughs> I toyed around a little bit with like the idea of automatic writing where you just sit down and like just start writing stuff and I found yeah. that to be a pretty a, a fun and enlightening exercise in some ways. Just to, you know, write out. Let's just sit down and start writing and see what happens. And at first, I'm like, yeah. nothing's going to happen. But it does. Like, you can just start writing things. And, like, sometimes it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you have to ascribe the meaning to it. But there's, there's such mm -hmm. a powerful connection between writing and thinking that is really – the more you do it, the more it strengthens your thought. It's almost like you're – your brain or your body is giving your brain permission to think about it in some sort of way. There's a weird body mind connection there. Well, there is. And the automatic writing uh, is somewhat akin to uh, I can vouch from experience that uh, at least as far as my writing style, uh, when I do fiction, uh, I don't know what the character is going to do. Uh, I sit down to start writing. They do it. I've heard right. people say that. I've heard many people talk about it until the first time I experienced it. I thought, well, that's bizarre. Nah, mm -hmm. it's what I never know. I may think I know and, and I may start out, but at the end of the day, they've gone in a direction almost as if they have a life of their own. It's very interesting. And I suspect some of that comes from 
uh, it has a tie to what you're talking about that brooding beneath our consciousness are many currents of subconscious mm. thinking and unprocessed things mm -hmm. and that those come out as well. Uh, so it's an interesting thing, almost yeah. like green. You're putting dreams to paper. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard, uh, I spoke with a gentleman yesterday who brought up the word co-creation again. He, he explained it as, you know, when something is riding through you and he used it, he says like, that's, that's you and the spirit or whatever, whatever you wanted to ascribe to the, the muse, the spirit, your, you know, whatever you want to use, it's you being the channel through which you're co-creating with the world or the universe. Mm -hmm. he, I thought that was a really wonderful way to put it. And then he's like, you know, people get caught up when they think they control it. Like that's when you get writer's block is when you think you control that, which is flowing yeah. through you. It's like you shut it off in some ways, you know, but it, when you open up and you allow the things to pour out of you, you're also allowing things to fill you. And like, it's just, it's a, I really enjoyed the way he described it. I was like, oh, that's a great way to put it because people who have written have felt that before. And it's difficult mm -hmm. to put it into to the language. Like, what is that? Like I, I sit down and I'm inspired and this thing happens. Like it's, it's wonderful in so many ways. And you <laughs> are you're so creating it with your creation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's kind of related a little bit. And I don't know which philosopher this was. Gosh, this was back, I think, during my graduate school days. Someone was really wrestling with their identity and with all these philosophical questions. And they were asking themselves inside, well, who am I? Mm -hmm. And they heard distinctly inside, who wants to know? And I remember my hair stood up. And I just looked at whatever book I was reading. And I've thought of that many times since. You know, who am I? And I now I've not had a an interior a voice say who wants to know. But <laughs> if that ever happens, I don't know what I would do. But there is something to be said about, uh, yeah, we are multifaceted. Mm -hmm. And I saw something the other day that if you split brains a certain way that uh, uh, fragments i don't know where this came from still uh retain total consciousness and total identity in disparate pieces mm. i don't know whether that's true or not but it was an interesting thought uh you know where does the i identity of myself mm. reside uh is it just the uh conflation of the various parts doing their thing uh, oh, that Hawaii identity is a fascinating concept. Yeah, it really is. I suspect there's a non-locality portion that we don't thoroughly understand. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know that? I can go a long ways with that one because I don't suspect there's a non-locality. Uh, well, they're starting to impact it a little bit with their thinking about uh, quantum entanglement having yeah. to do with consciousness. Yeah. So maybe i'm entangled with the better version of myself in another universe or maybe in all the maybe all the stories of heaven and of afterlife have to do with entanglement and yeah. things again there's so much we don't know yeah yeah it's so exciting to think about and i tying it back to the yes project on some level i think that what's beginning to happen is that we're giving the next generation the tools to conquer uncharted territory 
that's beautiful to think about. But I think getting the, you know, just going back to the first part of the book, getting these different ideas, but more than that, getting the underlying idea of is, is better than not is. Getting some common ground for people to stand on. I think that's the foundation of which you can begin to build because you can't even build anything if you can't have a foundation to stand on, right? <laughs> and I, I I agree. That's certainly my thinking. What can we agree upon? Yeah, uh, we can agree upon that. So if I'm a Republican, to use American language, uh, I can agree that uh, you, as uh, a hated Democrat or however people want to factionalize themselves, sure. uh, you are better than not having you. Uh, yeah. uh, but really what we're saying is existence is better than the prefer the yeah. preferable. The latest thing I saw that I really like as far as quantum physics goes, uh, there's <laughs> some thinking that, uh, the big bang is not just the linear, uh, thing we think it is. Uh, currently that of course it's been floated that there could have been multiple bing bangs and oscillations and all this right. uh, and I forget which uh, uh, physicist it was it, it was a lady and I believe and there's talk around an eternal existing uh, quantum foam uh, but the the and for various reasons uh, singularities can pop out of that mm. and create universes. Whatever the um, uh, truths or non-truths of the particulars of that, which are still too far out to discern, the idea behind it is again resurfacing, oh, something might be eternal. Mm. And that's the thing that's interesting. Oh, we're thinking about, oh, something's eternal again. Oh. Uh, so I find that I'm, I'm processing that thought as we philosophically think about eternal versus non-eternal. But when, uh, so is versus not is has to do with whatever the eternity is. Mm. Uh, certainly it could be said that uh, is is thought better than not is. And then all of creation that comes after whatever singularities or whatever is that struggle to see is uh, better than not is because all of it is fighting entropy. Some yeah. people will say it doesn't matter because it's all going to be not is at the end. Uh, but then I just read another nice little philosophical piece about life is the only thing uh, that takes uh, briefly entropy in the universe and goes against the grain of what the universe is doing for a while and perhaps at some point life can succeed in overcoming entropy so in one sense is is better than not is is a cry of life stating existence is better than entropy and nothing and so in some regards the preciousness of life is that for that brief millisecond that life exists it's declaring that the general negative nothingness is surpassed 
And therefore, when we teach children is is better than not is, we're teaching life is better. And you see it in that book there. Uh, yeah. Life is better than non-life. People are better than no people. Mountains are better than no mountains. All of it, uh, if you will, a uh, a challenge, if you will, from life against entropy and in your face is is better than the entropy that you are declaring. So there's some some of that in there in ways that I'm still thinking about. That's it's I like the way you described it there. And why shouldn't that be a rallying call for everyone? Like life is better. Like we all and we're all part of it. Like what if we what if we saw it that way? Like what if we saw ourselves as life instead of this incredible individualistic shard of life, you know, like I'm a little bit more blue than you, you know, or like yeah. well, what if we are just life? Like, like that just seems like such a beautiful rallying cry. Like let's let's beat entropy. Come on. We can do it. It is, We've been doing it it. is yeah. the rallying cry. It's the rallying cry of life that is is better. And traditions have put it. Uh, of course, if you look within the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, mm -hmm. uh, that's essentially what God says. It's good. Life is good. It's saying it's better. And so part of, at least in that uh, particular stream of thought, part of any kind of afterlife or whatever, is declaring that is is going to continue and defeat entropy because is is better than not is so you know that's part of the challenge of any uh, singularity bubble is that life is better than nothing uh, lots of places we can go here with some interesting philosophy but the nice thing is yeah these are discussions you can have with your 10 year old yeah i know <laughs> It might be interesting to have like a group chat with like read the book with kids and an adult like in a setting, you know, in like a communal setting. And then it, this could really give way to to I could I could see reading it and then shutting it and telling a story. You know what I mean? Like let's pause yeah. right here for a moment. You know, this is a great jump off point. Anybody got a does anybody have a story they want to share on this? Like it could really yeah. be some cool segues there. Because I can say this is my is story. This is yeah. my challenge of yeah. life against nihilism mm -hmm. uh, uh certainly i think it is would be very apropos uh in those settings in school settings uh i'm not naive enough to think that uh things of this nature will become a school curriculum <laughs> but uh certainly um adults together could do a wonderful job with this not just the parent it, it's a discussion worth having at all levels with all people yeah all cultures all human beings if we're going to survive um so many things we're challenged by right now and let's try to do it with our children it's you're at a perfect you have a child at the perfect age yeah for doing this yeah it's hard for me to believe my children now are all in their 40s i can't believe wow that. wow as because i mean next month i turn 70 which i'm a very young 70 uh mentally and all that and yeah. i can't believe it uh but sometimes my body lets me know oh yeah you're 70. <laughs> <laughs>
but I still see my children as all parents do as still 15 uh, and, and try not to treat them that way. Uh, But I wish personally, uh, we did have these discussions uh, in different ways, uh, but it would have been nice to have sat down with something like this and had these discussions a little more proactively rather than just randomly as the moments brought them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I think the effects, I'm very proud of my children and what they're accomplishing, but I would have liked to have had this back when I was raising children. And I don't say that because I wrote it. I just wish something like this had been available. So, and maybe it was, and I just didn't know. Maybe, maybe part of it, maybe yeah. part of it is getting to manifest it so other people can do it. So like a younger version of you or a different version of you has the resource to do it. What, do you have grand? Mm-hmm. It seems like you should have grandkids that are right around that age. Well, I would normally, and it's always so funny when uh, some of my more conservative friends uh, will say, well, or people meet me and they say, well, do you have grandchildren? And I always say no. Well, again, because we're all human. And we come from that background, their faces always drop and they go, I'm so sorry. And I go, why? (laughs) Why? Uh, But yes, I wouldn't mind. But by the same token, uh, my children are more than likely not going to have children for a variety of reasons. And that's okay. The line ends here. Uh, Yeah. But children are more than just your blood and your breeding as i found out a long time ago so i have other grandchildren they're just not biological and spread in different places so you got one over here normally be probably a great grandparent by now but you know the nice thing about that is i'll never be called grandpa i have been called grandpa but not my biological (laughs) but you do feel younger when you don't have grandchildren and great-grandchildren looking up at you as old bearded one Uh, I still feel basically a contemporary with my children, which is interesting. So it is a little bit of a different dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed it is. And yeah, I like the, what about, do you have any ideas for what the next book is going to start digging into? Have you, have you gone down that road? Have I kind of yes. mapped out the, maybe you could talk a little bit about without spoiling it. Like, is there a way you can give us some yeah, ideas? Uh, I have several in mind, uh, and at first I was going to go a little bit more, uh, evolutionary psychology. And, and as I thought about my, nope, too soon, too soon, <laughs> uh, going to have to build up to that. Uh, now I'm thinking about the next one, just as this one had quantum physics. Oh, uh, well, that's dealing with the subatomic. Okay. Uh, what's the next level at which you deal with things? Uh, that's at generally the atomic level and that's generally chemistry. So I'm thinking about the next one being around chemistry. I like it. And I'm beginning to think about that and look at how, and then of course, if you're going to do chemistry, then from chemistry, what's next? Uh, biology. <laughs> See, I'm giving this away. Somebody's going to run and write it and, and it won't matter because I'm not trying to be the bestseller. Uh, but I am thinking about the sciences. And I wouldn't have thought this until the last four years. Uh, And I say this, this will betray me a little bit, but Mm. 
I am so blown away as a child of the 60s with the understanding of how valuable science is and the science methodology to have people culturally not trust science and not believe science. The thing of the last four years around COVID and all that about science and not believing science, I didn't have the mental ability to handle it first. It sideswiped me. I went, how could somebody not believe science? Well, I've thought about it since and I can see how. I was so stunned by that, that part of yes is also to, you know, continue the tradition of science. Science is one of the great things we have. Oh, and you blend science and philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, so I won't go on that too far, but I was absolutely stunned by the number of people I've met since who don't trust science. Now, obviously, it's not that they don't trust science. Right. They don't trust the Paleolithic uh, manipulations that primates do with science. Right. Right. That's the thing. So, it's, uh, but. You know, that's a discussion that's hard to have with folks. So, again, teach children science is OK. You know, let's 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 not throw science away, but let's understand that much of the harm that we do, we do to ourselves. It's not what we think. And we do it for a variety of reasons as we wrestle with and balance the triangle. Yeah. So all woven together at some point, if I have time before I pass, uh, I'll do sort of an adult book around the whole balance of triangle initiative. Uh, and that was going to be the next thing I did, but that's now been replaced by the yes project. <laughs> I feel very strongly about reaching out to kids now first and then doing that. So. Yeah. I think that that's where the, the change happens is, is the breadcrumbs for the children to follow or the, the nutrients for them to consume. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. Chuck, I love our conversations. They go way too fast. And they we, do. you know, it's, it's like sitting down with an old friend and being like, so what do you think about this? You know, it's, it's, I, I really enjoy them. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking more about this book. Let's, we, I'm sure we'll, we could probably talk more often off air, but I would love to discuss some more ideas that you have on it. And, um, uh, but be, well, be, before I let you go, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm always open to that. We can talk yeah. anytime. Uh, yeah. Before we go, let me uh, do yeah. say one thing. Uh, yeah. uh, unless something changes, I'll be one of the authors on the Grace Swan Guild's um, book festival on December 8th. So uh, that's from 8 to 8 uh, Eastern Standard Time. There'll be 12 different folks uh, talking about different things they've written. Uh, so I be, will be addressing this then. Uh, we might put up uh, the thing that's going to support this is there's a website I created called my-yes.org. Uh, it's in the book there that you have. Mm -hmm. If folks want to follow and keep up with where this is going, and if they want to help give energy to this, uh, subscribe at that website to follow that blog it's in a blog format it's more than mm -hmm. a blog but that's the place where i'm going to be dumping anything having to do with yes so i just wanted to uh put that out there what 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 
Maybe you can talk a little bit more about the Gray Swan Guild event coming up. Like, are there some other authors on there? Like, what what is this event? Yeah, the Gray Swan Guild. Uh, this will be their second uh, book festival. As it, the Gray Swan Guild uh, is my chosen tribe because they're just marvelous what they do. And one of the things they're doing is a book festival. And uh, in this book festival, each person has forty five minutes to talk about their book, and they're going to be futures based. And I'll be the a strange fellow out probably again because uh, I'm going to be talking about yes and I still haven't formatted exactly what I'm going to do but I'm going to read through yes out loud again and see how long it is and I think I could potentially read it without hurrying in 15 minutes and then we could talk about it for a bit uh, and leave it open to audience discussion that kind of thing so that's coming up. The festival is December the 8th. If you go to LinkedIn, go to graceswanguild.org, I believe it is. And I'll, I can send you the link. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but as far as your audience uh, is on LinkedIn is where I follow Grace Swan Guild. They have their own website. They're 8,000 members strong right now. It was started during the pandemic. Uh, with just a handful of people. And in some four or five years, it's gone from, you know, 15, 20 people to 8,000. Uh, it is a group of professional futurists, uh, consultants, uh, academics, uh, people who uh, want to uh, who look at the future, try to see what's coming, evaluate, think. Uh, they have a consulting arm and then they have the um, arm that's the guild where all of us are trying to do good in our own way to the world uh i like them as i told them one time i said you guys are like men's on steroids you guys <laughs> just go and do and so i like them a lot uh so i have limited organizations i work with because i don't have time yeah uh, so the guilds where i give my time and my writing and then a handful of folks i talk with of which you're one of my favorite george yeah thank you thank you yeah it's it's the feelings mutual and it's people should check out grace one they have an incredible people there obviously and the work they're doing is is actually doing something you know they have a lot of momentum behind them and it's I'm looking forward to seeing the other authors and yourself up there as well and, and seeing how the Yes Project continues to unfold. And, you know, you've had two books out in like the last year. So next year, are you going to plan on, have, on having four? Are you just going to double it every year? <laughs> I'm planning for the nice, the nice thing about these children's books is they're short, fairly quick and easy to produce. Mm. I plan to do uh, in 2024. Uh, I would like to do four. We'll <laughs> so see. Awesome. We'll see. Yeah. I'm rushing think... against entropy myself. Ah, life. Uh, I'm, having, I'm having to hurry. <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on briefly afterwards. I'll speak to you afterwards. But to all the people that are tuning in today, whether you're listening on a in your truck or your car or whether you're watching it live with us or you're playing it back, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Go down to the show notes, check it out. The Yes Project, uh, read it with your kid. It's a real great opportunity to co-create and begin seeing the world in a different way. So that's all we got for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.